Good morning. Thank you. It's great to see you all this morning again. I'm so glad that I have this opportunity to talk with you this morning. I don't get to do this that often, and if I'm being totally honest with you, I don't love it. People keep asking me, are you ready? Are you ready? Sure, I think I'm ready. Are you nervous? Absolutely. But you know what? It's all good because uh, one of our guys told me before, he says, everybody's supposed to love you here. So whatever you say, they're still going to love you, right? I said, I sure hope so. So anyway, but that's all right. Um, you, you may have noticed something on the stage that's not normally here. We're going to talk about that a little bit today because um, we're talking about an all-access pass. I'm going to be unpacking that a little bit this morning. You know, there are times in our lives when it seems as though everything just clicks. You know what I'm talking about? All the traffic lights are green. Isn't that just a great day when you're cruising down the road and all the lights are turning just when you need them to? Or you're hearing far more yeses than noes just in life. Everything just seems to be working. You know, doors of opportunity are just swinging wide open, and you just feel unstoppable. Anybody ever experienced something like that? It's a great feeling, isn't it? I remember a time back in school, I went to school at a little place called uh, Troy, Alabama. It's in southeast Alabama. At school that When I was there, it's called Troy State. Now it's Troy University. And we were about an hour south of Montgomery, Alabama, off Highway 231. So like a lot of college students do, it was time to do something a little fun and go have a road trip. But not just any road trip. Oh, no. We had this great idea because it's like off in the distance, there was this, this call that we could just hear. And it was a soft, still voice reaching out from beyond, a beacon of hope that looked a little bit like this. Has anybody in here ever been to a Krispy Kreme donut shop and seen that glorious sign right there that just lights up? What are you getting when you see that bright sign? You're getting hot donuts. If you've never experienced hot donuts, it is life-changing. It is amazing, all right? Um, they, they design these places really, really well. They've got windows everywhere, and you can't really make it out, but there's, there's a lady that's looking through that window. Her eyes are about this big because she can see what we all as college students were just excited about. We just knew that beyond those windows were hot donuts. So we're, we're, we're making the trek, the pilgrimage from, from Troy up to Montgomery, because all we could think about were these brilliant streams of glaze just falling down on these beautiful pillows of goodness. I'm telling you guys, it's an amazing feature. It's like a river of donuts just coming down the conveyor belt. That's all we could think about. We were just so excited. Anybody ready for a donut right now? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, you could just, you could just taste it. So we're driving there almost as fast as we can, right? Because we just know that when we get there, we're going to be able to experience hot donuts at Krispy Kreme. But instead, the place is closed. We drove an hour, and it is closed. Can you imagine? It's just the worst. It's the worst feeling in the world when you want something and you know that it's just beyond your reach, and you're faced with a closed sign. There's just no access. You don't, you're not allowed to go there. You know, it makes you feel like somebody if you have access, doesn't it? But it kind of makes you feel like a nobody if you don't. 
I can remember another time a buddy of mine uh, when I lived in central Florida uh, had the opportunity to get uh, football tickets to go see my alma mater, Troy University, take on an SEC school because we were not in the SEC. So this was going to be Troy University going to Gainesville, Florida to go play University of Florida. And I don't know about you, but uh, can I get an amen? The Gator fans are just the worst, all right? (laughs) They're just awful. I'm sorry if there's any Gator fans in the room, but they're just awful. And I knew it was going to be bad, but, you know, these were special tickets. And I was really excited because unlike just sitting in the stands, my buddy was able to get club-level seats. If you've ever experienced club level at a football game or any other big sporting events, it's a different environment. There is a mountain of food available for you. You don't have to go to the concession stand and wait in line. They've got like a special level that you just get to walk into and go get food whenever you want. And this was just great. And you got special seats. And so I'm excited about this. And so I've got my Troy gear on, and I'm in Gainesville for this football game. And I know we're going to get beat, but I don't care. And I go, and it's time to go get my plate of food. And so I walk into this area, and I am literally one of two people in a sea of Gator fans wearing Troy stuff. And two old guys come walking up to me and go, son, are you lost? And I said, nope. And I pulled out my pass because I had access. I was allowed to be there. And that was pretty cool. I, I, I know a lot of you have been to Disney World and other places like that. Anybody ever had a fast pass at Disney World? If you don't know what this is, um, when you're at Disney World, all the lines for all the rides have a timer on them. And the average line for all the common folk is usually like three hours long. It, it, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And you know that. But there's this other one. There's this other gate with another timer that's usually five minutes. And it's right beside the one that says 60 or 90 or 120 minutes or whatever it is. And that's the fast pass lane. And when you're smart enough to get a fast pass, what do you get to do? You get to walk in real proud and show them your pass and walk right by all the sorry saps that are standing in the other lane, right? And you almost feel smug, you know, because they're sweating and they're angry, even though they're at Disney World, and they're just upset, and you get to just walk right by them because you've got access. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's so cool when you have access because you feel like somebody, but it's really not cool when you feel like a nobody because you have no access. Maybe you feel like a nobody and it makes you feel left out, like maybe you're unimportant, like maybe you're not worthy, or maybe it's a function of it's just not possible for you to have access. And this was the story of the Israelites. It was simply not possible for everyone to have the kind of access that they may have wanted. Because you see, there was this thing called the veil. There was a curtain that stood as a huge reminder that you could not have access to God anytime you wanted it. It stood in the way. It wasn't because God didn't want you. It wasn't because God didn't long to be with you. It wasn't because God didn't love you. But it simply was because he was and is and always will be holy. He's holy. And we are not. On our own, we are not holy. And it is because of his holiness that we cannot just have access whenever we want, especially when we are Israelites and we're looking at 
this setup. And so God came up with a plan. And it wasn't the best plan in the world, but it was a workable plan for the time. He, did, he gave a special instruction to the, to the people, and he says, I want you to construct a portable place of worship, and we're going to call it the tabernacle. And so as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they have this, this thing called the tabernacle, and, and God gives specific instructions on how to build it. And there's some interesting things in here. It's not just like your normal church, is it? It's a little different. If you notice real closely, there's some things going on in here that we don't have in this room. It's a little different. But one of the biggest things that I want us to notice, and, and it's hard to see, I know, but I'm going I'm to try to use this cool little pointer here. Right up in this area right here, there's a curtain. There's a veil. And that served as the barrier between everyone and the presence of God. It's the first physical reminder that we are not like him. And we do not have free access to God. Because standing in the way of the people is a curtain. No ordinary person was allowed to pass through this curtain and enter into the presence of God, into the holy of holies, except for one, the high priest, and only certain conditions allowed him to do that. In fact, if you look in Leviticus 10, and you don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 10, there's a situation that happens where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, you know, Aaron is, is the high priest, and he's got sons that he's training to be priests. Nadab and Abihu are, are two of his sons, and they offer God an unauthorized fire, which was contrary to God's commands, and they were killed for it. And it says in Leviticus 10, the Lord said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. See, the penalty for being in the presence of the Lord was death, unless you were allowed to be there. And we see in Leviticus 16 that the Lord God informed Aaron by way of Moses that he is not to enter the Holy of Holies just whenever he wants, or he will surely die. Being in the presence of God, whether we're standing or kneeling, bowing, hands up, hands over our head, it doesn't matter what our posture is, being in the presence of God is a serious thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. Our worship posture doesn't give us access. It's about our holiness, and we are not on our own holy, are we? So you're looking at the situation, you're thinking about Nadab and Abihu, and you're thinking about how God is talking to the people and to Aaron, the priest, and you might be thinking this sounds pretty harsh. And I guess it is to some degree, but we really need to think about this holiness piece, don't we? And why are we calling this room the Holy of Holies? What is it about all of this? Well, it was the area within the tabernacle and later on in the temple where the glory of the Lord appeared. As it was said, only the high priest was ever allowed to go beyond the veil, and only once a year. And I'm, I'm really pressing this point for a moment because I think we need to really think about what's going on here. You know, this is a lot different. It's very foreign to the way that we think about God, isn't it? I mean, in our, in our modern day time, we just don't think about access to God in this way. We pray to God anytime we want, don't we? 
we gather in places of worship like this each and every week and never really think about this as being a sacred space that needs to be revered. It's just a, it's just a building, you know. And I wonder if it's this lack of reverence, uh, or, or I wonder if it's, it's a lack of reverence towards God that has led us to think about this. I suspect that too often we do very little to prepare for worship, to prepare to be in His presence. We really don't think about it. In fact, if we're being really honest, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, including my own, but if we're really being honest, we don't really do much to prepare at all to come together here. Instead, a lot of our preparation sounds a little bit like this, doesn't it? Do I have to go? Man, I hope they end on time because the game is starting soon. Cowboys are playing, right? I got to go. And if I hear one more sermon on that, oh my goodness. Hey, 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 where's lunch? Are we having lunch today? Do we have to stay for class? I don't even know why they call them Bible communities. It's so boring. Do we have to stay for that, mom, dad? Can we just go? Man, I'm so sleepy. I stayed up so late last night. If this preacher didn't make it exciting, I'm taking a nap right now. Or maybe you had a fight with your spouse on the way here, and so you're just fired up, and you're walking in there thinking, man, I don't even like you today. Come to think of it, I don't like too many of the people in this room either. I'm leaving after communion. I mean, if we're being honest, that's a lot of times how we are when we come together in this place. I know it's true for me. Maybe it's true for you. We just don't think about the reason that we're here. We bring so much junk into this place and often without any thought as to who will be among us. Maybe it's because we've grown so accustomed to having access to God that we take this access for granted. But to the Israelite, they didn't take it for granted because they had no access the veil served as a huge reminder that God is serious, that God is serious about sin, that he's serious about atonement for sin, that he's serious about holiness. God cannot and will not allow sin to be around him. He just just won't do it. He can't. So he gave explicit instructions to Aaron and the priests of Israel and to all those in the Israelite camp concerning what to do about their sin problem. He said, I know you've got one. Let me help you out with that. We're going to put together this system of of sacrifices and offerings that are going to be used to atone for the sins of the people. And they had to be made over and over and over again, first in that tabernacle that we looked at a minute ago, and then later on in an actual temple. In fact, we're going to take a look at the, the the first temple. Let's fast forward a little bit to the time of King Solomon. This is what they suspect the first temple probably looked like, the one that King Solomon built. Let me tell you, it was amazing. It was built of stone. It was lined with cedar and then overlaid in pure gold. In fact, the entire interior of that room, they say, was was covered in gold. Can you imagine walking into a room and it's just gold everywhere? It was a beautiful sight. It's pretty different Quite an upgrade, if you will, from the tabernacle, isn't it? But if you look really closely, and I know it's small, but I'm going to point again right up into this area right here where you see a number four. That right there is a familiar sight. It's a little bit different looking. 
little bit larger, but there's a familiar sight, and that is the veil, the curtain that still stands between you and your access to God. It's still there. It's a lot more beautiful, but there's still that reminder that God is God and I am not anything like him, and I cannot just walk in there and talk to him whenever I want. The rules are the same. No one can enter the Holy of Holies other than the high priest and only when it's time to do so. And so we're still under the same law, the same covenant, the same situation. And this is going to be the status quo for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. This is something that the, the, the Hebrews dealt with for a very, very long time, generation after generation after generation. This is what we dealt with, whether it was this temple or another one. In fact, as you know, this, this temple didn't last that long. It was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians. And some time goes by. And if I'm understanding this right, I think they go back to the tabernacle, and that's where the ark is kept for a time until we get to the time of Jesus. And there's a whole different temple set up. It's enormous. We didn't talk about it a second ago, but the tabernacle, the dimensions of it could have easily fit inside the end zone of a football field, basically. Solomon's temple would have taken up about a third of a football field. But can you see, well, we'll see in the next picture, the scale of this place. It dwarfs a football field. You could put, you could put several inside the whole temple area because on the previous slide, you can see that this is an enormous area. The court of Gentiles is the big blank space in the foreground there. And then you've got the actual temple area itself. It sits on what they call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it was an actual geographical formation that was kind of a rise in the geography. And it was a great situation with strong bedrock that they could build this temple on. And so Herod said, this is the place, and we're going to make it something. It's going to be grand. It's going to be huge. So let's, let's, let's zoom in a little bit. And you can see from the cutaway, again, you can start to make out some of the features of this. But it's a little hard to see, so let's get a little closer. Now we're inside the temple, and you can see these little people. There's one. There's one right there. They're tiny because this is a gigantic building. It is extremely tall. It's not quite as beautiful as what Solomon built, but, man, it's got it on size, doesn't it? We've come a long way from the humble appointments of the tabernacle. And while the beauty of Solomon's temple may have rivaled Herod's temple, it didn't compete with the size. They say that it took about seven years for Solomon's temple to be completed. But most estimates say that it took at least 46 years for this temple to be built. In fact, during the time of Jesus, it wasn't completed. They were still working on it. So at least 46 years for it to be built. That length of time kind of puts that passage in perspective, doesn't it? When Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everybody said, you'll do what? It's taken at least 46 to get to this point. How on earth are you going to do that? Back inside this temple, we see again a familiar sight, though, don't we? Right here is the veil. Only this one is absolutely enormous. Most estimates say that it was about 65 feet tall, about 30 feet wide. And roughly three inches thick, or the width of a man's hand. Thickness was that thick. They, they say that it was so heavy 
so massive that when they were putting it together, they said that it took at least 300 priests just to carry it so that they could hang it in this temple. It's an enormous veil. It's an enormous curtain. If there ever was a clear sign to all the people that would gaze upon this temple, let alone the temple veil, that God was separate from his people, this was the place and this was the veil. There is separation. You do not have access to the Father. You don't have access to God. How could any ordinary person even consider God as their Father with this kind of setup, right? Can you imagine being a person in this day and time and trying to relate to God the way that we try to relate to God? It's a whole different mindset. And God knew this. And it's as if he said, enough's enough. I'm going to do something about this. So we get to John chapter 1 and verse 14, and it tells us that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In fact, the message paraphrase says it this way, that he moved into the neighborhood. I really like that. It's as if God, through Jesus, moves into our neighborhood, and he says, I'm going to be among you. I'm going to be around you. I'm going to walk where you walk. I'm going to do the things that you do. So God makes this huge move. God is saying that no longer is he going to choose to visit us in a man-made house. The tabernacle was fine and it served a purpose. The two temples were great and beautiful and splendid and they served a vital purpose. But God knew that it was time to do something else because these were not good enough. And he knew it since the beginning, didn't he? And he had determined all along to do something about it. So he sent Jesus. And Jesus, like I said, walked among us. He breathed the same air as us. He felt the same earth under his feet that we do. He experienced the same human condition that we experience. But his presence here was not just for fun. It wasn't just to hang out. It was for a purpose. It's for a terrible, horrible purpose. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 27 for just a minute. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. And let's pick up in verse 45 and talk about that purpose for Jesus coming in the flesh to this place. You know the story. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of these standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' after Jesus's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, And all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So much happens in this short reading. 
certainly the most significant thing being the death of Jesus. And what a powerful and awesome event. But as, as significant as that was, I also want us to not miss something else that happened in there. That huge 65-foot-tall, 30-foot-wide, 3-inch-thick curtain that was separating everyone from God tore from top to bottom. Split wide open. The veil was torn. For hundreds of years, a curtain had separated the people of God. No one living at this time could remember a time when there wasn't a curtain. There had always been a holy place and the most holy of holies. There had always been this need for atoning sacrifices to be made by the high priest. What does all this mean? Everything's different now. Everything's changing. Has God abandoned us? Has he left the building? Well, no, he hasn't abandoned us, but yes, everything has changed, hasn't it? Everything changed. God's no longer going to deal exclusively with the priesthood of Israel. He's removing the barrier and saying, everyone may come to me. Everyone can come to know me. For the first time, the holy presence of the Lord is not going to be hidden behind some curtain. For the first time, everyone has access to the Father. So I want us to unpack this a little bit, and I'm going to ask you again to grab your Bibles, grab your Bible app, whatever you've got. And I want us to dig into Hebrews chapter 10. That was our scripture reading this morning. We're going to look at it again. Hebrews 10, I really want everybody to just get into this with us because I tell you what, this, as I was studying through this, I really had a hard time zeroing in on what to do. If you really get into Hebrews 8, 9, 10, this stuff is strong. There's a lot going on. And so I want us to just get into Hebrews 10. We're going to start in verse 1 and just hang with me as we just read through this, okay? And I want us to think about a few things that we've been talking about as we read this. Remember the tabernacle and the temple. Remember the priests and the sacrifices. And remember the veil that has been separating the Holy of Holies and the presence of God from everybody else. Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. 
Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. When you think about all that we've been talking about and the tabernacle and the temple and the veil and the sacrifices, and then you read this, it really brings it into maybe a clearer perspective, doesn't it? What does all this mean? What does this mean to the Israelite, to the Hebrew, to the Jew at this time? What does it mean to us? What does it mean when this curtain has been torn? Well, for starters, to the Jew, it means no more barrier between them and the Holy of Holies. It means no more priests to go between them and God because Jesus is our high priest. It means no more sacrifices to atone for sins because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. It also means to them that they now have access the thing that they've probably been longing for, the thing that they thought they could never attain, the thing that they always thought was out of reach, untouchable. God is somewhere else, and I'll never get to him. Now we have access, and I can come to know him. I can begin to have a relationship with this God. That's what it might have meant to an Israelite, to a Hebrew. But what does it mean to me and you? What means that we are made holy by Jesus' shed blood. And we have no need to feel separated from God's presence, to feel as though he is far away from us. No, we are welcomed into God's presence, are we not? And that's an encouraging thought, that we can be in the presence of God, not because we ourselves are holy, but because we have been made holy by him. It's the only way to get there. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? And so maybe you're thinking about this this morning, and maybe this message is a reminder of just how sweet it is to have a great relationship with God the Father, to even think of him as our Father, and how wonderful it is that we're not living under the old law, the old covenant, but instead we're able to have the kind of relationship that we can have. And if that's where you're at, man, that's, that's awesome. And I hope that this is just an encouragement to you. But what if that's not how you're feeling right now? Maybe there's others in this room that are hearing all of this and you're still thinking, I don't feel it. 
I don't feel like God is here. I feel like God is still there. He's on the other side and I can't get to him. I've never felt close to him. I've always felt like there's something standing between me and him. After all, why would he? Why would he want to know who I am? Why would he want to get to know anything about me? Doesn't he know the kind of stuff that I've done? Does he know the kind of person I am? Doesn't he know my secret thoughts? Doesn't he know all of that? And so why would God want to step out from behind that and say, come to me? Wouldn't he rather just say, I don't want anything to do with you? Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I'm here to tell you that the message of the torn veil is both access and hope. That's what it's all about. If you feel as though you need some hope this morning, you can find it. The veil has been torn. There's nothing standing in the way. There's nothing that prevents you from having access to the Father. If you need some help finding that, if you need help accessing that, we're going to have shepherds around the room that would love to talk with you. I'll be down front as well. If we can pray with you, if we can help you in any way, I want you to know that there is hope and that you can find access to the Father this morning. Let's all stand together as we sing. All that you've done, I will thank you for all